So um, you were talking about advertisement of attorneys before we went on the air, and we came on the subject of some gaudy ones that we've seen before. Um, now, you've been to Florida before, but you haven't noticed the signs down there. No, I never noticed the signs. Oh, my God. I was yeah. too distracted by, like, alligators crossing the road. Yeah. Or... Well, okay, that would distract anybody, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Maria, my wife, is from Florida, and I go down there at least once or twice a year, and they don't have any qualms about advertising down there, man. And, uh, you know, you, you've probably seen the, uh, uh, the movie or the, the guy who's uh, just called Saul. Yeah. You know, he's got his attorney's office in the like the strip mall, <laughs> you know, and his, his signs are all over the place. That's what Florida looks like. You know, I mean, most of those attorney's offices are down there. Sorry, Florida attorneys. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be uh, speaking like this, but it's true. You go down there and you go, oh, my. This is like un, you know, unfettered, you know. They, they could advertise any way that they want, you know. But you said something else about Florida, and I'm going to bring it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you've been to Disney World two times in your youth, and you walked yeah. away with, hmm, come uh, on. I mean, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a crowds person. Pre-COVID, I, I was not a but fan. You were a little girl. Come on. <laughs> well, to be fair, I was in my twenties when I went to Disney World. Oh, so okay. I wasn't but you know, when I was little, I went to Disneyland a okay. few times. And then you're off the hook there because you yeah. do experience it differently when you're an adult. When when I moved out here to California, you know, all my childhood, all the privileged kids you know we went to disney world or we went to disneyland and they got all this stuff and then my siblings older siblings went there and i was always the one that didn't go so oh. i come out here i'm a cop and i go to disneyland and i'm like ah i don't like the crowds <laughs> you know and it's a little bit colder out here than what they said it was in the area around disneyland at the time it's not like this now but there was a lot of seedy hotels and all this stuff and i'm going okay but I, i'll tell you what though, i brought my kids to disney world and disneyland and i'm gonna tell you disney world was better yeah. Okay. Money, yeah. you haven't been there, right? No, not to Disney World. World. No. Okay. Well, I mean, they got like eight campuses, you know, and you take a bus from one to the other mm-hmm. and you stay at their hotels and you're still in the theme park. And mm-hmm. to me, it was really fun. They, the only thing I would say is my kids were tuckered. They were so tired. They were begging us to go back to the hotel. And we're like, <laughs> no, let's do more. We're going to get our money's worth, right? <laughs> you got the water parks and all that and stuff the going Animal on. Kingdom and all these. Yeah, I think there's eight parks. Yeah. So it takes like a whole week wow. to get through everything. And I guess they're redoing Epcot during this COVID oh, right. thing, and they've added to that. And that was the most spectacular thing I've seen of any of the Disney stuff. So uh, maybe someday we'll all go as a firm. You know, wouldn't that be That's nice? True. Let's do yeah. it. Okay. So um, COVID-19, right? Vaccines are coming around. Mm-hmm. What, are your, what are your thoughts about it, Mane? Well, I, I did read an article that um, President Obama, Bush, and um, Clinton are um, – Lining up. Are lining up to say, hey, look, we'll do it to show you guys it's safe. Um, I don't know. It's kind of scary. Really? it's still very experimental, so I don't know. But I think it's great. Um, I think they said that by January they should have, like, um, the trial ready to go. And I think it's first going to go to um, senior citizens and healthcare workers, and then it'll become available to the public. So, I mean, if it's available, I'm sure. I know what you're thinking. By the time they get to me, man, they'll be tested. I'll, exactly. be, I'll be good to go. Exactly. Yeah. By the time it hits target, man, all these other people have been the, the guinea pigs, man. I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah, I think they're actually starting in the U.K. with some trial runs. So by the time it gets to us, we'll see <laughs> what's good. going on over there. See, see if there's still a, a Britain left after that. Yeah. You, know, you know what's uh, – this sounds very horrible, but you know maybe we should have cards. Hey, you know, either, you know – 
vaccined or not, you know, or you've got the antibodies or not, you know, yeah. and you, that would allow us to go where we want to go. If we've, de- I'm going to tell you right now, I'm first in line, man. I'm getting it. I don't care. You know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, people are so afraid of vaccinations, but yeah. we get them all the time anyways. Right. I think it's a huge, uh, like issue with getting the population to actually get vaccinated. I mean, we've yeah. had the flu vaccine for years and it's very effective, but the amount of people that actually get vaccinated, it's very percentage? low. I think it's very, very less than 50%. Oh, my God. Very I didn't know low. that. Yeah, there's a documentary on Netflix. Well, is it because people can't afford it? Well, actually, it's usually free. Yeah, I mean, if it's you usually to- free. Um, there's a lot of like organizations that travel to you know poorer countries, and they hand them out for free. Even in the U.S., you go to CVS, you can get your flu shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, when I go to court, when I was going to court, you know, without doing the court call, because now we're doing most of the things on phone and the, the court system apparently is shutting down again. We're, from what I'm hearing is, oh. is that they're, they're really discouraging you to go into the oh. courthouse, you know. Um, but the times that we were going and I've gone with both of you to the court during COVID, it, it's kind of like you feel like you're taking your life in your own hands sometimes when you do do that, you know, because God, I mean, it's like you got anybody and everybody that's hovering around the court going in there. So. It's a bit it's a bit scary being in the hallway waiting for you to get calls or if you see someone inappropriately wearing their mask, you kind of want to say, hey, <laughs> wear that correctly, but you can't. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit. I mean, there's face shields, but they're so ridiculous looking that I wouldn't take myself seriously. <laughs> I'll be honest. I've never gotten a flu vaccine. Yeah, me neither. Um, but I definitely will be behind Dawn in line for the, the okay. COVID vaccine. Well, I'm thinking about ladies first. I mean, is <laughs> okay, that okay? I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about some serious stuff today. And we thought we would bring in the end of the year discussion of the domestic violence cases. Stephanie, uh, last time you were on the podcast, you talked about a case, and it was really interesting. It was about a woman who thought she was entitled to a domestic violence restraining order. The trial court said, and then she took it up on an appeal, and the court of appeal went like that as well. (laughs) So we got some other ones here. Then I don't know how you're divvying them up. I should say this, is the two of you are are good friends. Your offices are right next to each other. You collaborate on everything. Uh, I don't want to say you conspire on everything, but, you know, I told you to tell me, you know, you pick your cases and you tell us. So who's going first here? I could go first. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we, we read the cases. We kind of talked about a common theme amongst each other between all three cases that we kind of went over. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll go through the, the shorter one first. Um, it was the marriage of Ancola case. Um, what year is this? Uh, they're all 2020. I oh, well, this one's 2019. It is? Yeah, it says 2019. Um, Ooh. <laughs> you know what I think? I think we, I received it right at the beginning of the year, but I received it in 2020, but it was, it was published in 2019. Okay, yeah, tell me about Ancola. Still pretty recent. Yeah. Um, so this case that dealt with, obviously, domestic violence, and basically what had happened was wife had obtained a, a, a permanent restraining order against a husband, um, and a couple of months later, the husband filed his own request against the wife. Hers was granted in June of 2017. And then in August, so um, two months later, the husband filed his own. Um, there was a hearing and the court had, um, you know, there was a, a long trial and the trial court actually issued uh, what's called mutual restraining orders. So um, even though husband was the one requesting the second restraining order, the court again issued a restraining order 
protecting the wife. So it kind of reissued the first one, but it was a new one. Correct. Okay. It was a new one. So husband then appealed um, the issuance of the new restraining order protecting the wife. Because? Um, and what was, it, what was his claim on appeal? So his claim on appeal was um, that the trial court made an error pursuant to um, Family Code 6320, um, which states, uh, which has two prongs. The first prong states that in order for a court to grant a mutual restraining order, both parties must be present and they both must have on file their own um, requests for a restraining order. So... The Court of Appeals affirmed um, on the grounds that the wife, while she filed a response to the husband's restraining order, she did not have her own application on file. And because of that, uh, the trial court didn't have um, the discretion to grant these mutual restraining orders. the trial court was reversed. Uh, Correct. Yeah, because in essence, wife, if you wanted a restraining order, you needed to file it again. You can't just coattail off of the first one that you got. Correct. Him, right? oh, well, the first one was still in effect. Yeah. Um, that husband was appealing that one as well, but the appeal was pending, so we don't know what happened with that one. But, um, but yeah, thinking about it now, I mean, there already was a restraining order, anyways, against the husband. So, I just think that it's a good lesson for us when we go into court to know that uh, if you want a restraining order, you know, you've got to ask for it. You can't go into it as a defendant. You know, and say, Judge, you know what? Look, there was evidence that, you know, she slapped me on the face during this incident. So it was good for sauce for the goose and sauce for the gander, right? I know you're, <laughs> you're making faces. I thought I would say that so they get that reaction from you. So, you know, you can't, you can't say that because, you know, the, the, the code is pretty clear on that, right? Correct. And, you know, in the beginning of when I, it's been almost two years since I've been practicing, I, I didn't know what a mutual restraining order was. And I did believe that if, that a court would be able to issue one even if you didn't have your own application. So it's, it's good to know that you have to satisfy both of the uh, the prongs under 60, 6320 to get your own restraining order. Yeah. In the old days, they used to do that. Before the mm-hmm. code was amended, they'd go, eh, make it mutual. Mm-hmm. you know. And they're like, no, 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 you don't get to do that. So cool. Okay. What, what, what other case are we going to talk about? How many do we have here today? We had about 10 cases today. <laughs> Okay, well, but the one that I will be discussing is Curcio versus Pels. Okay, so it's not a paternity action, it's not a divorce, it's uh, two women who were in a relationship, and one of them filed a restraining order against the other. So let's see, they dated for about two years, and the relationship ended in 2016. And about two years after the relationship ended, um, you know, one of them filed a restraining order. So both were comedic performers. That was a theme here, that they were both like comedic I, you know performers. What, when I read this, I'm like, I want to go on YouTube and yeah. see, like, watch these. I, I wanted know. to watch one of their like stand-ups or something. I, I, they were at the Ice House here in Pasadena. Mm. Mm. I found their Instagrams. You did? <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. She's our private investigator. <laughs> okay, so uh, Curcio was the one who filed a restraining order, basically alleging that, you know, Pals had been physically abusive, that she had been kind of stalking her, following her at theaters. Um, there was some sexual assault that she had posted on Facebook, this huge rant outing her. Um, you know, my partner physically sexually abused me. If you hire her in any theaters or performances, you're basically supporting a, a rapist. Can, or an can you stop right here? Would we agree that there was a lot of venom in this relationship? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, and she was going for the, what they say, the proverbial jugular? The jugular, or? yes. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, so there's this social media post. Um, she alleges that she woke up to a blow to her head. Um, so there was some physical violence there, that she was unstable. So we get to the hearing on the restraining order, and both parties are actually in pro per. Neither has an attorney. Um, Could you imagine that two comedians sitting at the conference table trying to right. keep a straight face as they're no go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, what happened? The court basically uh, accepted everything that uh, she put in the pleadings. They accepted it as truth and evidence, and then they shifted the burden, making um, Pels show that she did not commit these acts. So there was a weird shifting of the burden. Um, so Pals had no witnesses. She didn't, you know, examine Curcio, nothing like that. So the court granted the restraining order. So it was really, really weird. Um, essentially here, what the court found Court was, of Appeal. Uh, the trial court oh. granted the restraining order okay. because they found that the Facebook post disturbed her peace that that was a, a form of abuse. And this is kind of the crux of the decision, right? Right, right, right. So, okay, so then on appeal, the court found that this one private Facebook post, which happened to be the person's opinion, did not constitute abuse. It was not disturbing of the peace. They were, and then they were compared it to other cases where where they did find disturbing of the piece, you know, um, someone hacked into someone's email account and printed all the emails, and they sh hacked into their phone and got some text messages. Eliza versus them. Sweeney was that one of the cases they talked about. Right, yeah. right. And so, in comparison to those type of situations, this did not constitute disturbing the piece. Um, so the trial, the court of appeals did reverse the the order, and the restraining order was. Dismissed. You know, I, I read the decision now. I can't remember. Was there a, an, a constitutional analysis about First Amendment rights in this one? There was a, uh, a speech restraint issue, but the court found didn't go into that because they found that it wasn't necessary. Okay. Yeah. Because you know what? It's funny. I breezed through that decision, and I think I assumed that there would be a First Amendment issue because we know on other cases right. where a trial court has said, sir, you better not post anything more on Facebook about your, your ex-wife. Right. That was found to be unconstitutional and reversed. Here, from what I understand, is she was posting on her personal, private, private Facebook. Account. So it's not like the public knew about it. Right. It was people that she knew. It was like, it'd be like having a conversation with a group of her friends, right? Right, right. And so it was odd because the, the trial court found that by posting that Facebook post, it was interfering with her ability to find work, to support herself. And that's how it disturbed her peace. But the the court of appeals, you know, found no. That's one post. It's private. It's not. It'd be not. different than if she was standing outside the theater, as she's going into audition, and she's you know, uh, following her in and saying all things you know as she's walking behind her and mm -hmm. going up and interfering with it. But this yeah. is like a freedom of speech issue yeah. to me. But it wasn't really decided on that issue. It was more like this one single incident. Right. Okay. And then also the they reasoned that the trial court made an error in shifting the burden. That first they should have uh, put the burden on the petitioner, the one bringing the request. What a novel thought. Right. To put the burden on her to prove that there was actual incidents you, of abuse. You mean that, that big rubber stamp that that court has sometimes just isn't constitutional? Is that what you're telling me? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So I guess there's some due process in family law. Exactly. Due process. Okay. There what? was also, I wanted to add one last thing. Um, 
I thought it was hilarious that the judge ended up adding, and this was reversed also, he added an additional year to the restraining order because he felt like she wasn't taking responsibility. Yeah. She wasn't like admitting. Remorseful. Yeah. Remorseful. I'm going to add an extra year. Yeah. So that was also reversed. I, I forgot about that. So you know what that uh, smacked of is I, I know where that judge came from. That judge probably was a former deputy DA like myself and had been doing criminal cases for a long time because there you're always looking for remorse. Mm -hmm. That's something that always goes in with sentencing. And uh, I think this judge crossed hairs there. You know, it was like, for one thing, this isn't a criminal case. And two, if you think that she's being disrespectful, right. what's the remedy for that? Contempt of court, yeah. right? I mean, I could hold you in contempt, but instead, I'm going to add another year. And say, yeah. uh, pipe up again, I'm going to add another year. You know, it, it doesn't work that way in family law, right? Right. There was no legal basis for that. Yeah. Now, there is a, there is a basis for adding uh, time, and that is, is how, how egregious the incident was or how bad the domestic violence was. Then the court could say, well, in my discretion, it should mm -hmm. be a, a five-year. But, you know, I don't like your attitude. I'm going yeah. <laughs> to slap on another That's year. not enough. Okay, so that, that's a great case. Uh, what else do we got? Anything else on the menu here? Yeah, I was just flipping through the last case. Um, Wait a minute. She said there were 10 cases. I'm just getting, <laughs> getting going here. Um, this was the marriage of Everend. Um, and this is from March of 2020. Okay, recent. so at least we got a 2021. Um, although I don't know if it was approved for publication. <laughs> um, Uh-oh. Uh, but very similar to the first case that I was discussing when they go through – 6320 and the two prongs and basically this focuses on the second prong it dealt with a mutual restraining order um, so in this case both husband and wife had filed their own restraining orders so the court held one hearing it was a multi-day evidentiary hearing where a lot of evidence was presented police reports testimony um, you know a, a lot of a lot of evidence I think it was three days or four days um, and a husband appealed the restraining order. So the court, in the end, ended up granting mutual restraining orders um, against both husband and wife. You know, they were to keep uh, away from one another. And um, husband filed an appeal, but this time he um, it wasn't focusing on the first prong, but rather the second one, which states that um, the court, in addition to, you know, finding that there was... Um, applications filed by both parties, the court also has to make detailed findings um, indicating that both parties acted as primary aggressors and that neither party acted in self-defense. Okay, let me stop here. So this is really interesting to me because, uh, as Stephanie and I have discussed this before, is we're getting really into minutiae now with these domestic violence cases. When I started practicing, uh, you know, two centuries ago, there were no published decisions on domestic violence cases. Now what we're getting is is this every year a plethora of new cases coming through and they're examining issues, kind of like how they do in criminal law. If you ever practice criminal law, uh, there's so many new appellate court decisions. You just can't keep up with them. And they're just nuancing, nuancing, nuancing. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting in that, into the domestic violence uh, restraining order cases in family law. And this is, this is a nuance that I did find a little bit interesting. And so go ahead. I just wanted to... Put my yeah, two cents in there. Yeah, I think, I mean, as a young attorney, I think that's, I like that because a lot of the cases are like case by case, uh, very like specific facts. Then I found some of them very similar to the cases mm -hmm. that we deal with today, especially the ones that deal with um, disturbance of the peace rather than like physical abuse. So, um, so yeah, keep, keep them coming because it's, <laughs> it's, it's helpful. Although, it is helpful. Yeah, yeah it's helpful. Yeah. It's helpful. So, 
Um, in this case, the Court of Appeals did not agree with the husband because it did find that the trial court did make sufficient factual findings um, regarding the fact that um, neither one was um, the primary aggressor and that neither one was acting in self-defense. So, so he's complaining. He's saying, you know what? There shouldn't be a restraining order issued against me. And he's basically arguing a technicality. He's saying this trial court didn't make an adequate factual finding that I committed domestic violence on my wife. Correct. Because right? the code says that you have to make a factual finding. So what did the Court of Appeals say? The Court of Appeals said that um, the court did make detailed factual findings about the abuse. Um, um, you know, there was a police report pr uh, presented, two police reports. There was uh, a police officer who testified. Um, it, it found wife to be credible, you know, based on her body language, the way she spoke about the incidents, um, things of that nature. You know, um, there was a lot of a lot of history. Um, husband had a history of drinking. So ultimately, you know, the trial court did a good job of mm. making these factual findings when it rendered its ruling. Good enough. Mm -hmm. I, I, the way that I read this is that uh, the factual finding was good enough because it led the court of appeal to the record to see where that would happen. So like the court, like the trial court says, I find that there's been a long history of domestic violence in this case. And the record shows that there were witnesses that talked about those things, police reports and all those things that came in. So the way I read this decision is, is that we're not going to make uh, the trial court get into a, a war and peace description as to what happened, you know, a 45 page you know, statement of decision as, well, he punched her there, and I'm going to find that that was, you know, it's, it's basically you have to make the findings that these things took place and give an adequate roadmap or point in the right direction to the evidence. Is that, is that Yeah, right? I agree with you because towards the end, um, the Court of Appeals makes a statement like, although there's a lot of authority on what constitutes detailed findings, um, you know, the court is not required to, to go into it, like you said, pages and pages of, of, facts that you know it relied on as long as it's good enough to satisfy the code so i had a case recently where i wanted to ask for a statement of decision from the court you know and most, a lot of these judges by the way they're doing a really good job mm -hmm. of that i mean i've mm -hmm. had some of them they just like you don't even have to ask they're like and i find this and blah blah blah, blah. and they're like holy cow man that that was superior even <laughs> though i lost on that case that was a superior statement <laughs> of decision but you know um you know, I, I'm tempted sometimes to ask when, when it's a close call case, they ask for a statement of decision, such as, you know, uh, would the court make a uh, statement of decision as to the factual findings that throwing a cake across the uh, room is not disturbing the peace? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you could go into that. Uh, or, I guess they have to write the statement of decision. They've got to have the factual findings, but it doesn't have to be as detailed as maybe we want. Right. So long as they've heard the evidence, right? That's what it is. Yeah. Well, mm. this makes me think of the me and you recently had a case in the summer, and the the trial judge did a great job of um, making factual findings. Yeah, that that guy right there, he should be on the court of appeal himself. Right. right? Yeah. The way he wrote that thing, yeah. it was like, yeah, I've seen a couple of those. I'm very impressed by, by the detail. You know, uh, that they they're do. really listening. Yeah. yeah. They're trying yeah. to avoid yeah. <laughs> some of that. <laughs> well, that was fun. I just wish that you had a couple more. All I right, mean, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, ladies. It was, it was wonderful, and uh, we'll see you soon on the next turnaround. Probably in 2021, we're going to be coming across the uh, COVID cases part two. Yeah. I did you love that. Okay. Thank right. you. Thanks, thanks Don. Don.